just a small mistake that's kind of funny? Or was this Bill Belichick up to his old cheatriots tricks again? We're on to Atlanta. <laughs> Hello and welcome to All Four Quarters, your one-stop shop for news, views and overreactions to all things NFL. This week we'll be looking through some of the coaching and executive moves, some injuries and some bits and pieces from around the league. We're going to review the Pro Bowl game, Pro Bowl hype, uh, take questions from you, the listener, and now finally, it's come to it, lads, it's time to preview the Super Bowl. So hey, we've got Connor here, we've got Harry. Hey. And um, we've got Fitz. Hello. How is lads? Any crack? Ah, grand. Tipping away, uh, getting my food plans ready for the Super Bowl. Mm. Uh, I'm very excited about some of the things. They sound nice now. Getting the materials together for the snack stadium. Man, I've got a few things I'm going to cook and some cold Mm. food, and it's going to be pretty decent, I think. Excellent. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to that pork now. It sounds really good. Yeah, pork belly. I was going to do sort of Japanese style, bit of soy and stuff like that. Mm. Um, They've got red pork belly or whatever, so. That'll be lovely. What about yourself? It's any crack down in Cork? I know it's quite enough. Just. uh Mainly preparing to survive the weekend, considering the oh, yes. itinerary. You've got the you've got the stag on the Saturday. Oh, yeah. yeah, which involves going to Carlingford at like six a.m. or something. Yeah, it doesn't oh. sound like a fun trip. <laughs> uh, <laughs> way up to the the northern badlands. Mm. Yeah. You're barely in uh, the country from, anymore, boy. I'm from there. Uh, I'll be okay. Don't know yeah. those other uh, southern lads. Soft we'll southerners. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I thought you're you're a hardy Ulster man. Ah, should be should be good crack now. I know is Cavan Ulster. Cavan's not Ulster. Mm. I... No, Cavan is an Ulster. Is it? Uh, yeah. Cavan Monaghan and Donegal are the three. That yeah. we still so technically, have. Paddy will be closer, even though he's only from uh, he's Loud. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. But no, uh, that should be should be good crack. I'm doing this with two Ulstermen. I'm amazed. I've got my kneecaps left. That's it. Uh, <laughs> we've got. Uh, I'll be meeting yourself for for a pint on Friday, Fitz. We hate Protestants, not Jews, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but am I a Catholic Jew or a Protestant Jew? <laughs> That's a fair question, though. What do you reckon? Do you want a United Ireland? Oh, yeah, of course I want a United Ireland, Mike. Excellent. So, yeah, uh, you're fine. You'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm going to have to go up there to uh, canvas. Oh, yes, because they, they've got their election coming up. I saw the posters. I was up in Donegal on the weekend. I saw the posters coming through the north. Yeah, they have the posters. It's, it's all getting real, like, mostly greens because uh, we're part of the same party like so uh, I might have to go up at some point I'm not sure I'm not sure how that's going to pan out yeah I will see we'll see sure it's grand crack take the uh, take the the Republican tour it's great crack and they take you at the end to the pub that's run by uh, by the ex-prisoners it's called uh, yeah, I'm not sure watch them might be great optics you know for our cameras of the Green Party and oh, then heading up to the oh it's great the, the bar's called Felons we're looking for the moderate votes I'm not sure that'll go down too well uh, ah that'll be fine um, so I suppose we'll fire on in lads we've got a few bits to get through uh, lots and lots of moves uh, at the coaching and the executive level uh, in the last week or so San Francisco have hired John Lynch, a television analyst, and made him the GM. Uh, It's been said he's got no experience, so it'll be an interesting one. But a lot of people reckon this is because they want to give control, final say over the roster, to to Shanahan whenever he comes and takes over. So what do we think of this? Is it a bad idea to have someone with no experience coming in? Because historically, especially with first-time head coaches like Shanahan, if you give them the control over over the roster as well, it rarely goes well. Yeah, like there's a lot of bad precedents here. So like the precedent they they like to bring up, of course, is the uh, John Elway with the Broncos, ignoring the fact that he actually did a pretty significant apprenticeship with uh, in the Arena League as the GM there. So it, like it was, it, it's kind of different, but that's what they're trying to go to. Maybe they're trying to get kind of catch the same kind of spark where you know the Indianapolis Colts keep getting um, linked with putting Peyton Manning in some kind of executive role. If you look at the actual precedents, yeah, you look at that case where 
a young coach is giving a lot of work. You think of things like Joshua Daniels, for example, that didn't really work out the first time round, where he had a lot of say over personnel, and that led, of course, to the Tim Tebow pick, which worked out amazingly once. Uh, but from a GM perspective, like in recent times, the only real comparative is with Matt Millen from a media background with no like executive experience. And that turned out pretty badly, if I remember correctly. Uh, no winning seasons, and of course the infamous 0-16 and 16 season for the Detroit Lions was under his tenure. So when you look at the comps, this lack of experience could end up being a bit of an issue, and that means there's a whole lot of extra pressure put on Kyle Shannon, who's never been a head coach now before, and now has to be the GM as well. I think, as you said, there's just a lot of coaches who've, who've taken that path, uh, or it just hasn't really worked out. So I, I don't think this is a good decision, but I don't know. No one really knows. No one has any has any experience of how good he might be in this role. Yeah, and they've locked him down long-term. They've given him a six-year contract, which like would suggest, I suppose, a bit of a plan to start a rebuild and to give it time. But then again, I, I just don't trust the ownership in San Fran to actually see anything through. So I, I wouldn't be happy. I hope, I hope to be proven wrong. I'd like to see them resurge a bit and put a bit more competition into that division. But uh, we'll see, we'll see. Indianapolis have uh, reached into the coffers and stolen one of my boys. Uh, Chris Ballard, Casey Director of Football Operations, has been made the GM. Uh, he's very well regarded in Kansas City as having done an excellent job on picking up good defensive pieces and overall just being quite good at managing who he's picking up in the draft and stuff like that so I would expect this is a strong and quite positive move for Indianapolis what do you reckon yourself Harry? Yeah I'd agree it makes complete sense like you say this is a guy who we saw assemble one of the best defenders in the league he gets a lot of credit for that so that's exactly what Indianapolis know they need to do they know their defense has been a shambles for the last few years and they need somebody who's going to be able to be basically a good talent evaluator in that regard and work out who the personnel are that fit the scheme they run and um, just sort of get the basics nailed down and rebuild that so the team isn't just totally reliant on Andrew Luck. The concern, of course, is that in Kansas City, the building on the offensive side of the ball hasn't been as good, yeah. um, particularly in the wide receiver area. I mean, I think you know that yourself. Oh, yeah. The, <laughs> yeah, the, the selections there haven't haven't really panned out as they might have done. But then again, I mean, you guys hit on like the likes of Tyree Hill and Macklin's been okay. Yeah. I think that the logic there is like, look, we, we have faith in the young receivers. We spent a lot of draft capital on getting receivers anyway. T.Y. Hilton's playing really well. We've invested a lot into guys like Moncrief and Dorsett. Keep them around. We know we've got something going there. We know Andrew Luck can ball out anyway. Mm. It'll be fine. Let's focus on the side of the ball where the deficiencies have been obvious other than obviously the offensive line, but that's, mm. that's a separate issue. So it, it's a surprisingly sensible move from an ownership that basically came out this week and said, we're keeping Chuck Pagano because we couldn't think of anybody else, mm. which doesn't really, again, inspire faith in Ursay's um, ability to manage this team. But it, 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 it's a really solid selection um, but if it pans out as they hope will basically address what has been the glaring issue there and obviously having a guy who is you know is well respected and has been seen as doing a very good job in terms of managing players and so on makes a big change as well from all of the poisons we talked about last week yeah. that was coming out from the, from the Ryan Grigson era so reasons to be hopeful there in Indianapolis but uh, they have to be you know, they have to be patient. Yeah. But as we've seen with Pagano, this ownership is perfectly capable of being a little more patient than it has needs to be sometimes. Oh, of course. Like, the one concern with it being in Indianapolis is I don't think... Like, one, of, one of the deficiencies Kansas City has had is that they haven't been able to build an excellent line. And that, I think, is the main requirement in Indianapolis. They need to protect Andrew Luck. So hopefully they can hit a little bit more on, on, on those types of picks. Uh, the New York Jets have hired John Morton, New Orleans receiver coach, as their offensive coordinator. He's never been an offensive coordinator at the NFL. 
NFL level before, but he is quite an experienced, uh, quite an experienced coach. So hopefully he can he can uh, bed in there and get some results. My main concern with this fits would be he's coming from a very high powered offense. He's coming from a scenario where they have the pieces there to do that, and he's used to working with. With, with a talented group. That is not something that's in place in, in New York at the moment. Do you think he can get results from what they have? Or is this them bringing him in for him to impose his vision and start a new build in in, uh, in New York? Yeah, it's a strange one. Like, obviously, Todd Bowles is generally considered a defensive-minded uh, coach. So you would expect that when he hires OC, he's expecting him to do like put their stamp on that offense. Yeah. So there's a lot of decisions to be made in the New York Jets. Of course, quarterback hangs very significantly over the team. What are they going to do? Are they going to go with one of the players that they've drafted recently? Do you try and bring back Geo Smith? You're probably not bringing back Brian Fitzpatrick. Like it's just there's really no certainty right there, and there won't be until until they make a move either in free agency or the draft. And then even at at the other skill positions, you have an aging running back. You have two aging, uh, well, two relatively older or more experienced wide receivers in Brandon Marshall and Eric Decker. There's just a, a lot of decisions there and not many pieces that are really fixed yet. And there's been turnover in the offensive line the last few years. So, yeah, like I think it's really down to whether he will be able to have much influence over the personnel that he gets because I think over the next, like maybe not even this year because I think some of those pieces will be kept on for contract reasons. But over the next couple of years, there's going to be a significant amount of turnover in that offense as it's tried to reshape it. Whether the you know that coaching staff will survive long enough to see that come to fruition is a different question. A different question, but uh, I'm sure he will try. Um, so right now, incredibly hard to say because the offensive pieces that we expect to see there at too many positions are, are completely uncertain at this point. Yeah, like we'll see. We'll follow this as it goes. I'm sure we're going to see some interesting moves during free agency from this team, and that might give us a better idea of where they're going. Uh, just as a side note as well, Wes Welker has now returned to the fold. He's going to be a receivers coach down with the Texans. Patriots South. Patriots South. Uh, I was saying, yeah, they, they're gathering a lot of Patriots pieces down there, aren't they? Um, hopefully he can remember how football works. Uh, <laughs> do you think this is a positive move? Do you think Welker can actually be... An influence on this, or is this more a, a, a punt and see what, how it goes? You know that little emoji made of lines? It's like the shruggy gesture? Yeah. That's what this is at this stage. It is a punt. They obviously looked at the situation with, uh, with Mike Vrabel and were like, hey, that worked out pretty well, so why not give it a go, bring him down, his coach, see what, uh, see what happens uh, in terms of, of how it pans out. It's an interesting one, given Welker. Like, I know you joked about it, but his concussion history is an interesting one to see how much he's still there mentally. Yeah. Um, he also, I don't know if you've seen the, the video a while ago where he showed up in the Tom Brady mask in the... Oh, I did, yeah. yeah. He's not in good shape right now. <laughs> and if he, the amount of drugs he was doing during his playing career... I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, look, in fairness, he's one of the all-time great slot receivers. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a fantastic talent, and if he can translate that into coaching, that's going to make a big, big difference. For a team that, like, to be honest with you, is become increasingly reliant on that kind of short passing, yeah. uh, well run routes kind of attack with Brock Osweiler, who they're presumably going to have to endure with for at least another year. So it makes sense to have a guy like Welker in there who sort of thrived off that kind of play. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not he can translate that his ability into actually coaching players is another question because it's that long running thing. It's not necessarily always the case, but in a lot of cases, the guys who are really good players don't become good coaches. And the guys who weren't such good players become good coaches. And the reason that's often postulated for that is that the guys who were super talented, like you can't teach talent. So they mm-hmm. never would have had to go through the same level of mentoring as other guys would have. So given his talents as a player, it's possible that Welker 
falls into that, but he was also known as being a very, very hard worker and a very uh, intelligent guy, obviously. So again, if he can bring that to Houston, it's a smart move, but it's a very, look, it's a low-risk move, yeah. and it could pay off for them, so why not, really? Yeah, best of luck to them. Uh, there's rumours floating around Arizona at the moment that uh, Palmer and Larry Fitzgerald might be retiring. This would be a huge shot to this team. They, their offence wasn't firing particularly well this season, but those guys are the heart and soul of it, and it would mean quite a large turnaround and a big swap for the for the team moving forward. So, do you think, Fitz, there's any truth to these, and what would what, what, what do you reckon the, the outcome would be if they do retire? Like the thing is, like apparently these rumors are coming from the kind of coaching executive circles. Those kind of like obviously they come through the grapevine through the various insiders, Ian Rafferty, Schefter, etc. Like that gives them some credence. But if I was to put like if I was to like put money on it, I would imagine right now, like Palmer is considering it. I think the rumors are coming out that Palmer found this season very tough for obvious reasons. He got hit a lot. It was a poor season in terms of results, and obviously he's not getting any younger. And I think Larry Fitz has said in the past effectively that. If Palmer goes, he will strongly consider going as well. It, it's a huge issue for Arizona, and like they'll presumably have to busy push some kind of like showdown on this relatively soon, so they can get their ducks in order uh, for free agency and the draft. But like right now, like if this was to happen, it would be absolutely devastating because uh, at that point, their best point choice is probably just go like wildcat with David Johnson because <laughs> you know Stanton isn't getting it done. We've seen he's very limited. Uh, he like he's fine as a backup, but he's very limited as a starter. So like this is incredibly worrying for the Arizona Cardinals. And uh, this is on top of all the free agents that they have this year anyway, like Tyron Matthew, Clay Campbell, and a number of other players. So a lot of uncertainty in Arizona this this off season probably coming up. Uh, and if this goes the wrong way for them, uh, this will be very bad. Uh, but we'll, we'll keep it obviously we'll keep an eye on this. But the rumors, the, the fact that these, these rumors are coming from a certain type of, of like uh, designation by the insider type uh, analyst is worrying. It's certainly worrying. I think. Yeah, I think if, if if I'm the Arizona Cardinals situation, I I let Carson Palmer go, and I say, Larry, hold on, we're going to sort you out, and then I go all out for Tony Romo. That's what I, I let one say. of those defensive players go to pay Tony Romo. Yeah, the one the one concern though would be they've had very poor pass blocking from their offensive line of late which they wouldn't be able to survive with multi back surgery Tony Romo. But <laughs> I, think, uh, I think you mean Tony Romo wouldn't be able to survive. That's with true. Yeah. But uh, but no I was I was going to say the exact same thing. I think if if he's going to be leaving they would probably pop to the top of the list in my head of, of landing spots for Tony Romo but yeah sure we'll see I'm sure we'll have more information on this as, as, as it progresses so we'll catch up on it on later, on later shows uh, the NFLPA has put in a proposal on weed to the uh, to the to the NFL uh, suggesting that they bring in softer uh, softer punishments for it that it's obviously the, the the general run of stuff of the it's used as a pain coping mechanism and all this kind of stuff and basically you know this kind of it will be legal in the state soon enough i suppose this was this was expected wasn't it we kind of we, we we've heard it from multiple sources we're expecting to see them push for much much softer uh responses to weed amongst players yeah and it, it makes sense i mean look, we've been we've rehashed this quite a few times in the podcast just about the punishment for weed in general and how Totally disproportionate it is in the NFL's eyes. As you say, one game for beating your wife, uh, ten games for missing a drug test. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And you get the same punishment for it as you would for any other substance abuse, so you can go and take as many steroids as you want, mm-hmm. and you get a four-game ban, same as you would weed it. It's nonsense. 
What is interesting is the way in which the Player Association went about it, because they haven't given a lot of details. They were like, we want reduced punishment. Uh, you know, it should be just a sensible approach by the NFL. They're sort of implicitly saying, without saying, what everyone knows, which is that well over half the players in the league smoke weed. Like, everyone yeah. everyone knows that. It's, it's a thing partially cultural and partially because it is a very effective pain, uh, management, pain tool. management tool, which is much less dangerous than a lot of the over-the-counter solutions yeah. sold in America particularly in much, America much safer than barbiturates yeah and opioids and all those kind of things Vicodin the league's response was along the lines of well it's in the CBA and the CBA is a CBA so the league are trying to push it down basically until I think 2021 is the next CBA yeah. negotiation the player association interestingly talked about like being like morally on the right side of history which is, is, is quite a strong statement <laughs> <It> is. <laughs> about like suspensions what will, what will you tell your grandchildren yeah, about you, your approach to weed where were you during the great marijuana war in the NFL but I think that's sort of a real statement of intent. And like Damora Smith said, the league is going to say whatever the league says. We aren't thinking about what the league says. We don't care what the league says until we go in there and talk to them. Yeah. So they're clearly taking this very seriously. And it's obviously something that has come from the players themselves. And at this point, it, it's, it's an interesting one because we know the NFL is incredibly defensive about its disciplinary process, even mm. though it, it implies it as we you know, incredibly arbitrarily. We will and be discussing that in a little bit as well. <laughs> Every week. <laughs> But that, that, that's going to be a very interesting one to see how they approach that, what they do with it, because if the NFL is just like, well, it's in the CBA, it's actually quite hard from a legal perspective for them to argue against it. So the path they take there and whether or not they're going to try and do some horse trading and there are going to be other concessions given back to the owners on this kind of thing uh, is going to be interesting. The NFL really doesn't have that much to lose to it and is really just fighting this thing at this point for the sake of its self-perpetuated yeah. image that everybody knows is nonsense anyway. Yeah, this is a real, I think this is, a real test of that is how pig-headed the NFL is willing to be over winning for the sake of winning against the players. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see... It's going to draw some of the battle lines for that 2021 re-agreement as well. This is going to be This is going to be a statement on how that negotiation is going to go. It is, it is. So a lot to... Uh, I think there's a lot to sort of read into this uh, beyond just the issue itself, which obviously the NFLPA is right on because, like, come on. Yeah, no, it's just, it's just silly the way they approach it at the moment. Las Vegas Raiders might be hitting a little bit of a speed bump in their plan to, to get their stadium up and running. Addison has now said that he is out of their plan he doesn't want to be involved this is going to cause large knock-on effects for them I, I believe it was miscommunication and not involving him in the application process on the part of, of Raiders ownership but uh, he's a large Goldman Sachs client Goldman Sachs I believe we're going to be sourcing a large amount of the financing for it so this is a huge problem for them if this is going to if this is going to tumble all of the all of the best laid plans they have for getting the stadium built do you think they're going to be able to bring someone else on board, Fitz, or do you think this might be the, the end of the Vegas Raiders plan? Well, when they, when they made the initial application, they, they, they did say they had two plans. They had the Adelson plan, where you put in about $500 million, and then they had a self, well, not self-finance, but a finance plan uh, through a third party where they basically borrowed the money. In this case, it seems Adelson was important to get it through at the governmental level. Adelson is someone who has a lot of influence in Las Vegas, so when they were trying to get through the vote and all that type of situation, it was very important to have him. But, you know, it's hard not at this point to see this as kind of like uh, Mark Davis trying to cut out someone who's a quite a bigger fish, I suppose. Than, like Mark Davis, most of his, his wealth is wrapped up in the, in the Oakland Raiders, while Adamson is obviously like a billionaire, like casino magnate. Maybe he had a sense that, like, you know, I'd rather do this on my own and have like full ownership of this team rather than being in hoc doom. Like obviously this is all speculation at this point, but it certainly makes things tougher for them because I think when you're going into the owners' meeting in March to have a vote in this, uh, I think with Adamson it's like well, there's a lot of money behind this, everything's certain, 
now this opens up a big hole that has been filled by private finance by basically borrowing money. That's going to open up a big, like a lot more uncertainty within the owners. Like even just in March on that vote, this suddenly is going to create a lot more turmoil than Mark Davis probably was hoping for and was probably expecting even just a few weeks ago. I think additionally, the fact that they now know that Adelson probably from from the from the ten from the tenor of his statement isn't particularly happy about this that he could become like someone who perhaps could end up actively or you know even passively making it more difficult for this to go through like you know you're going to Las Vegas it's not probably the height of governmental integrity uh, it probably helps out someone on the inside who could help you in yeah. a fixer type way not to go all Godfather on it but uh, this 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 just created a lot of uncertainty where there wasn't previously. It'll be interesting to see how this develops and what seemed like a, like a closed and shut case of them moving to Las Vegas suddenly looks a lot less uncertain, a lot less certain now. I am going to go Godfather on this, actually. Um, it's not hard to find billionaire sports promoters slash property magnets in Las Vegas, and it's not hard to find people who would probably not be happy going up against Sheldon Adelson, because that's a tough ask, but might be... Think they can gain something from it, yeah. and I mean, you look at, for example, I'm just going to throw this out here: Lorenzo Fertitta, who's worth about two billion dollars, particularly after the sale of the UFC. Yeah, here's a guy. His son plays for Notre Dame. He's been pretty much involved in casinos, uh, property speculation, and sports promotion is how he's made his money. And that's just one name. There's dozens of guys like that out there in Vegas. Yeah. And it'll be very interesting to see if somebody else crawls out of the woodwork to try and tack themselves on to try and get themselves a leg up mm. in that in that shark pit, basically. Well, this is this is the thing that will be interesting because I think if we start seeing other people emerge as well, I think that will bolster the idea that there is an appetite in Vegas for this. In fact, having extra people come on might be a boon in terms of showing the support that would be there and the potential success for them in the area. Well, I've definitely showed the mafia are on board with it, so... <laughs> that's it, that's it. Sure, it's easier to run books if uh, if it's happening just down the road. That's exactly it, isn't it? Um, so yeah, we'll see how that how that pans out. We'll obviously next month there'll be or yes, next month there'll be a vote on this, and we'll be able to uh, to to find out how that's going. A couple of injury roundup shenanigans from around the league. Uh, the NFL admits that Matt Moore's concussion protocol was not followed correctly. If you remember, he got the living shit kicked out of him and then was back in, I think, two plays later or one play later um, with a bleeding mouth and stuff like this here. So uh, they've basically said that wasn't followed, but they're not going to follow up on this. They're not going to punish anyone for it, which seems, as we were discussing earlier, quite an inconsistent application of the concussion protocol regulations. It's a really weird one because... What they said is they said, oh, he came out, he was bleeding from the mouth. They had a look at him, saw he bit his tongue and sent him back in, which is fine until you think about it for a second. And you're like, so he had symptoms. He'd taken a huge hit. And then they saw the mouth bleeding from the mouth as a result of his tongue. But then they didn't go and check him for anything else. Like, it is possible to both bite your tongue and be concussed. It's not an either-or situation. The medical staff treat it as an either-or situation. And now the NFL is basically saying, well, that's a good enough excuse. And we're okay with it. It doesn't take a play to assess somebody. He needed to go and be assessed fully. Even if they can see there's superficial damage, they need to check there isn't something more. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it, it is just weird. I can, to an extent, I can understand the position of being like, well, they checked him and, you know... They thought he was okay. He was Heat okay. of the moment, kind Heat of... Exactly. But the fact that there's, there isn't more coming out of this, or even just a thing like, look, we need to say that even if we can see something else is happening, we do still need to go through the entire yeah. process because it's there for a reason is, like you said, it's just another inconsistent thing. And again, it's the league just 
not really caring that much. And it's interesting because we had a thing, I think it was today or yesterday, where one of the sort of youth associations um, basically said that for their stuff now, they're completely scrapping the football rules, more or less. They're saying Just doing their own. they're only going to have nine players on the pitch. They're getting rid of kickoffs entirely. Mm. People aren't allowed to go out of a three-point stance now. They have to go from a crouching position. And you can argue that, I'd probably agree, that that is a bit much. Yeah. But like the concerns are real at this point. If that's happening in, in youth leagues, that's ultimately where you start find, your players start developing. And it's good that kids aren't getting concussed. But it really shows that there has been a change in attitude mm. here. And it is seeping into the structures of American football itself. And the league really needs to take this a lot more seriously if, you know, even 20, 30 years down the line, it finds itself in a position where everything under it has been eroded and it's the only part of that structure that, that still plays with that level of disregard. No, of course. Uh, so we'll see. I would expect that we'll see stuff in the off-season about this and more people advocating about it, especially there's a large amount of push from ex-players on this. So we'll we'll expect to see more about it. The NFL are also investigating. This is a Seahawks-esque entity. <laughs> uh, Le'Veon Bell not being on the injury report going into the championship game. Obviously, he was in for, I think, six plays before he was removed for the rest of the game. Uh, Again, this is similar to the Seahawks situation. We won't really know anything until further down the line, but they're going to be looking into why he wasn't on there. The biggest, probably, injury news at the moment is what's coming out of Vikings camp. Uh, They have said that Teddy Bridgewater is on track with his recovery, but the on track with his recovery would mean that he will not be fit to play until March 2018, which would mean that they will lose him for another season, which is a big blow, obviously, especially for a player who... People had question marks going into the season. They were looking to see more development from him. This essentially being removed from football for two years cannot really help them with that. And given that he was the plan for the future for the Vikings, this is potentially a very big setback for them, wouldn't you say, Fitz? Yeah, like this is like it increases the uncertainty about this. And I think, like I think from the Vikings' perspective, like they 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 made the move. They went for Sam Bradford, and like they're happy enough to go with him with his you know exceedingly high. Accuracy, but exceedingly <laughs> low yards per attempt. Um, so I think for the Vikings, they'll survive, they'll move on. They have so much uncertainty around the rest of the team, like at left tackle and like running back, that like this might get lost now. But I think for Teddy Bridgewater, this is a, like, a really tough blow. By the time he comes back, he may already be a free agent. Uh, who knows what his market will be like at that point. Um, so at this point, it's just very difficult to know if he has a career in the NFL. A two-year hiatus is just such a huge amount of time for a player who, as you said, hadn't really proved himself. You have to feel like we, we've said this you know, previously, but you feel really bad for Teddy Bridgewater and you hope the best for his recovery. But at this point, at best, you're probably looking at the coin flip that he'll ever come back and have a significant impact on the league. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, and then finally, uh, last piece of news for the week. It is obviously media circus time all around the Super Bowl. There was some uh, Shanahanigans going on because uh, an unnamed reporter in a hoodie was there and left with uh, Shanahan's bag instead of his own, which contained the Falcons' offensive plan for the uh, for the upcoming match uh, on Sunday night. This man was known to be kind of a husky gentleman with the arms removed from his... Uh, I, think, I think his name was uh, Pil Pelichek from the Chicago Star Tribune uh, bugle. Uh, so... Is this is this a case of just a small mistake that's kind of funny, or was this Bill Belichick up to his old cheatriots tricks again? We're on to Atlanta. <laughs> oh God knows! Like uh, <laughs> I wouldn't put anything past at this stage. Nah, look, I'm sure this is just one of those things. Uh, obviously, it's going to turn into one of those like a Ferrari about it. But 
I, I can't imagine that even if you take the worst possible interpretation of the Patriots <laughs> under Bill Belichick, that they would try something that brazen. Yeah. Like, I, this is just somebody picking up the wrong back. I have, I, have I have a bigger question on this. Is What the fuck if he's doing media interviews? Is he doing <laughs> yeah. carrying around his fucking playbook? Entrapment. That's what he's doing. He, he knows the Patriots can't resist stealing it, so he leaves it by the podium, you know? So, uh, yeah, so that was that was the, probably the funniest story that's come out so far. But obviously, we're recording on the on the Tuesday here, so we've only really had one day of the coverage. Have you seen what's been... Oh, this is just so NFL. In the same way that they use their, like, band celebrations to promote the stuff. Mm-hmm. They've been using the Marshall and Lynch, I'm just here so I won't get fined, to promote this. And it's like, you find him for that. <laughs> oh, God. They don't... They don't uh, the neck on them, like. There's, there's just no self-awareness, I think, is the, uh, is the big issue there. Um, so I suppose that'll do for the news, and we'll wrap on to the, uh, to the greatest game uh, ever played. Uh, time to look at the Pro Bowl. So we had a very interesting Pro Bowl this year. Uh, AFC versus NFC again, back to the old format. Uh, in stark contrast to other years, this is a 20-13 to 13 defensive uh, shootout. I say shootout uh, ironically, I think. Uh, <laughs> of NFC got, I think, seven or eight sacks in this game. AFC were picking them off left, right, and center. Uh, there was a very fun end to the game here with Lorenzo Alexander picking the ball off, running down the... Running down the down the sidelines and then uh, trying to lateral it backwards, kind of rugby style. There was it was it was it was enjoyable. There was trick plays. There was Andy Reid had a fantastic moment where he literally live to camera called his shot as they were scoring the touchdown because they were interviewing the coaches on the sidelines through their headsets and they said, "How are you feeling about being shut out so far?" And he goes, "It's okay. We're going to score on this play. Watch." And then they just scored uh, to the to Alex Smith throwing a pass to the to the tight end. What did we make of it, guys? Did we like the did we like the game itself? Yeah, it was surprisingly fun, especially in the first half. Players were playing a little tougher, perhaps than people expected. For example, Jimmy Graham uh, didn't take too kindly to what he considered a rough tackle at the end. He was then responsible for like dropping the ball, well, tipping the ball, allowing the interception that lost the NFC the game. So you know, bad game for Jimmy Graham. So yeah, like I think there was definitely a contrast in coaching styles. It was obvious that Andy Reid was coming here for all the biscuits uh, <laughs> and you know the fun biscuits too because uh, he had a failed trick play. Uh, which basically just went backwards, 10, 15 yards. And then he had one play which Alex Smith nearly managed to hand the ball off to the defensive player who was in the backfield. <laughs> uh, but like, as you said, Andy Reid was also the player, like was also the coach who was, you know, live calling his own calls and, and scoring touchdowns that way and was generally having a bit more fun with it. I think, like, overall, the AFC defense was probably less effective, but they had some clutch moments, you know, as clutch as you can be in the Pro Bowl, most tellingly. The interception in the end zone of Drew Brees. Big, big moment in the game there. Well, on the other hand, Jason Garrett was very dull, to be honest. He brought out a very vanilla playbook. Kind of just ran the, the Dallas offense, but, you know, with, with, with the intensity obviously significantly lesser, going to the run game didn't really make sense. Like it's, it's, it's game plan didn't make sense. And, you know, during all of the festivities, when all the dancing stuff's going on, most of the, you know, post game memes and stuff were just him kind of like, you know, shaking his head, like, Scaling. kind of in a rueful manner, but he really wasn't getting into it, you know? Jason Garrett, he just, he didn't have the Andy Reid swag, basically. <laughs> um, so I think in the end, NFC deserved to lose just because of that. Like, but yeah, if you look at the stats from the game, the NFC definitely should have won this. They dominated every single statistic, like, passing yards, rushing yards, yards allowed, first downs, conversion rates, but they just couldn't pull it together. Typically, 
telling interceptions kind of uh, throughout the game did that. Did we like the uh, the skills competition? So we had obviously a couple of ones like accuracy, but we also had dodgeball and stuff. I think you were a little let down by the dodgeball, I, weren't I was, you? I was really down with the dodgeball because there was a time limit on it. And I was like, I wanted to see how many dudes T.Y. Hilton could take out. Like, his fucking last stand in that game was <laughs> something else. Uh, just, uh, But the NFC were able to just run out the clock. Yeah. And look, I, before they get this, you know, I, I, I was the only one who predicted this correctly. Like, you guys said the NFC, and I said, I just hope everyone has a good time. And it really felt like everyone had a good time. Like, Romans mentioned during the game that there was some fun stuff. Like, there was yeah. other things about, like, the field goal fake with Kelsey... Uh, J.H.I. getting picked up by a couple of Vikings defenders and <laughs> doing the little Superman before he just dropped unceremoniously. <laughs> Kirk Cousins, we know, all know about RG3 being made to play safety on the scout team. Yeah. Kirk Cousins is the natural safety on that team. <laughs> that run back and strip of Aqib Tlaib. Oh, gosh. But all this, the skills competition, it was great fun seeing the guys like OBJ was having the time of his life. Marquette King, despite not being selected to the Pro Bowl, just showed up with his, his phone yeah. and just spent the whole time live streaming it, which was <laughs> amazing. Just uh, him and Johnny Hecker having, having the, and Colbert yeah. having the punter bounce. Oh yeah, and they and, had uh, they, they had a moment where the three of them did a simultaneous punt, yeah. and like and, and all the balls hit each other in midair. They it did, was... yeah, and like yeah, so like obviously King was punting through uh, basketball nets. Justin Tucker, I know you hate him, sent a mm. field goal through a basketball yeah. net, which was very impressive. Fun stuff. Oh, Odell Beckham returning the punt in the sumo suit. That was just... oh yeah, I loved I loved the um, there was there was one where I think I'm not sure if it was Odell or it was one of the other receivers. What they did was they put him in the sumo suit and they put him in foot races against the linemen Lyman, just yeah. to see it would be quicker. <laughs> really good. It was uh, oh like it was. This is the thing. I think the Pro Bowl is great crack and like seeing it there like I say Garrett notwithstanding everyone seemed to be having a great time they just, at it. They, like, they just had fun with it and that's what it mm. should be and I think the skills competition has really added to it because oh, they were yeah. so silly and over the top like the, 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 the quarterback accuracy thing was just, like all the moving targets yeah, and, like, like the wind the windmill for ones yeah, and the, then, the steam and the flashing oh, lights and, oh, it, was it was just great. it was glorious so I, I thought that was uh, probably probably my really high point fun. from the lot was the was the Joe Thomas tweet that came out after he said like oh great day you know AFC win and I double my annual win total you know? it was it was phenomenal but uh, you know so the Pro Bowl was good crack it was a bit different and I think the I think they swapped back to the AFC versus NFC uh, was, was quite successful and uh, long, long may it continue. Pro Bowl hype. Pro Bowl hype. <laughs> so with that, we're going to move on to some questions from our listeners. Right, this first one comes in from Mike on Twitter. He says, "Surprise player in the Super Bowl. Who do we think is going to be the one that we're not expecting?" I suppose by virtue of this question, we are expecting. But you know, <laughs> I get where you're coming from, Mike. I get where you're coming from. So, suppose Harry, who do you think is going to be the surprise player? Well, I'd like to be a long snapper. No, um, <laughs> I don't think I can say Mohamed Snooks. I think we talked about him last week a bit too much. But uh, James White, the Patriots running back. I mean, we've seen a lot of chat recently about, oh, you know, will they get the power running game going with Blunt? Are we going to see sort of the more Dion Lewis outside short pass thing? I think James White's the guy to watch. He's been very, very quiet throughout this playoff run uh, for the last few weeks. But we know he's got Brady's trust and we know that he is probably a less of a good receiver than Lewis, but a bit of a better runner. So he does give the New England something a bit different in that backfield, even compared to Blunt and Lewis. We've seen him be a guy that New England have turned to in big spots because he is the third running back, because he is a guy people don't expect, but he's a guy with good hands, and he's a guy who can move the chains when the, uh, the, sort of the blocking is right around him. And I think that's the kind of weapon that New England are po- sort of poised to unfurl in this game, the guy you haven't seen do that much, the guy everyone's maybe forgotten about a little bit, but the guy who we have seen produce in big spots this season. James White fits that category for me perfectly, and I think that 
for all this, like we're going to see Lewis out of the backfield. I think James White's going to be the big receiver out of the backfield in that game. I think we're going to see him combine that with the more muscular style of running that he has than Lewis. Be very important in keeping that Falcons defense off balance in terms of what New England are going to do in that short passing game. And also he's the kind of guy who can can get open deep again when he's matched up on, on linebackers or, uh, should we say, slower safeties. This is that kind of you know hashtag Bellatrix thing we hear about, but I think this is the perfect spot for it. And I think the de-emphasizing of White over the last few weeks is putting New England in a spot where they feel they could use him. They can use him exactly because he'll be less uh, Atlanta will be less ready for it than they would be mm-hmm. for the for the other guys out of that backfield. Yeah, no, I think that 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 could be that could be quite a good shout there. Um, I suppose for me, I'm going to look at Taylor Gabriel. I think might be might be the surprise in this. We've seen him; he's quite a gadget trick play kind of. He's not your 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 normal kind of. Oh, he's going to do eight catches for for like a hundred yards kind of receiver. He's more a he'll either get five or he'll get fifty five in a in a pop. Like we've seen them do it in previous games where they've given him little kind of small little round ones where he just goes out to the goes out to the barriers and then just just peels down the sideline uh, and there's there's an extent to which I think the defense that the Patriots play might allow this because they're obviously going to be keeping an eye on Julio Jones as you mentioned Sanu is going to be there I don't think there's a huge depth when it comes to the when it comes to the to the cornerbacks there I think we've seen the speed of Gabriel so I think him on the outside trying to get past a linebacker or something, he probably has the speed to do it if he can get a bit of separation. But given what we've seen from the Patriots defensively of this, they will come in, they'll stack the box, they'll make sure that if you want to go, you have to go slow plodding. They're not about a big stop play. They're about making you have to work to get down the field. And it's that type of defense that if they just take an eye off Taylor Gabriel for a second, he could end up in a little spot where they are not schemed to protect what he's going to do and he could break off one or two big play so I'm expecting to see at least maybe two highlight pits coming out of him during this game if the Falcons are to be successful what about yourself Fitz yeah I always think a good shout is a Malcolm Malcolms have a, have a good history <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, Malcolm Smith Malcolm Butler they've all, all done pretty well and uh, on the Patriots they have a you know a surface of, of, of Malcolms they have uh, obviously Malcolm Butler is still there uh, Malcolm Brown but uh, I'll go with the I'll go with the like the perhaps the more sexy offensive one with Malcolm Mitchell. They they've brought him like he hasn't really made much of an impact in the in the off season so far. Chris Hogan is obviously the one who had who's had the had the highlight reel so far, and Edmonds had been okay. But I think this could be the game where you see Malcolm Mitchell get a lot more looks. I think uh, when you look at the uh, Atlanta uh, the Atlanta defense, I think he will be the odd one out, decent on the long game and like shutting down like the, the kind of long post plays and stuff like that I think it's the short game that will make a difference I think Malcolm Mitchell has consistently been a good has been a factor in that game I think we saw that in the earlier part of the season uh, where Rob Gronkowski was out and he was kind of used similar to that uh, at the same time while Bennett was a, a bit injured as well so I think we could see it would be very Bill Belichick to build like basically give like over 100 yards to a player like Malcolm Mitchell in the Super Bowl someone that you know people like us might be aware of but that the ordinary fan is probably like who's, who's that guy so I think I'll go with the Malcolm and I'll go with Malcolm Mitchell in this case uh, maybe he'll have a big game contrary to, to, to what you might have expected Fair enough Our next question follows on from this Ron it's from William Grant he says who do we think the MVP is going to be in the game? Uh, Tom Brady. Uh, <laughs> it's not very exciting, but quarterbacks win this unless they are terrible. Um, see last year, uh, well, not terrible, but like they don't like the defense is absolutely dominant. I don't think either defense is going to be dominant, so you have to go for a quarterback. And uh, this is kind of a spoiler, so I'm going to say Tom Brady because 
I may predict a certain team to win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I've been saying I think I think it is going to be a quarterback, and uh, not 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 to preempt it, but I think Matt Ryan might win it. Uh, but if if we're going to say someone alternatively that might kind of have a blow, like have a big game, I think I think if someone's going to do it, do enough to try and steal this off a quarterback. I think we might see uh, Bennett coming into this. He's big physical guy. It's very obvious when he makes a physical play that it's him and it's it's very visible because it's him manhandling or keeping going while there's someone on his back. So I think that would give him the visibility and if he has a big game, if he has a two touchdown game with 125 yards or something and a couple of big carrying defenders on his back type moves, that might put him into the into the running. Yeah, I think the assessment that it's going to be a quarterback is pretty sold at this point. Again, you have to be exceptional and have relatively poor quarterback play for it not to be in this day and age. So I'm not going to spoil my pickers for the end of this, uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to stay away from that question. I'm going to say that realistically, it's going to be either Brady or Ryan. What I think is more interesting is the approach you've taken there, Connor, is like who might have a big impact in there, basically without winning the MVP, but might actually make the difference in winning the game. And I think there's two. I've got two answers to that. Both on the well, I've got three. One of them is Devonta Freeman, but that's obvious. I don't yeah. need to explain why Devonta Freeman is. There's Devin McCourty on New England safety because if New England are going to shut down Julio Jones, the ability of McCourty to offer that coverage over the top yeah. to effectively bracket Julio Jones, which is incredibly hard to do, and especially since Julio Jones is a lot bigger than our cornerbacks, mm. he's going to be hugely important to that. And the other answer I've got is kind of a, a unit thing, which is New England special teams. Uh, so we're talking, you know, Ebner, Slater, Jones, and King. New England special teams have been a difference maker this season, and if, like you mentioned, what New England do is they don't make those big splash defensive plays, they make you go down the field because the more plays you make, the higher chances of making a mistake are. New England giving Atlanta long fields to work with, containing them and frustrating them, not allowing them to play that high-impact football that they're able mm-hmm. to play. Special teams and winning the field position battle are going to be hugely important. You're never going to see a special teamer made MVP, and you can't give the MVP to a unit see Eli Manning's MVP awards because they couldn't give them to the entire Giants defense. Mm-hmm. How well that unit plays is something that will be very, very interesting to watch and will have a huge impact, I think, on the outcome of this game. Okay, fair enough. Uh, we're going to do a third question from our listeners because I think it's only fair. We've, we've skipped over some of your stuff during the, during the year because we've been a bit time-pressed. So uh, this one comes in from Samuel Johnson. He says, uh, looking forward to the off-season, who are the potential free agents you're going to watch or who would be worth keeping an eye on for the next couple of months? Um, I suppose, for me, there's one in particular that I'm keeping an eye on. So obviously, we have two big-name players on the Chiefs that are going to be up for, for renewal. So that is Barry and Dontari Poe. I think... As it stands, from what we're hearing, they're going to get something worked out with Barry. I would be keeping an eye on Poe. There's a strong chance that they might let him go because he's going to cost a lot of money to keep and he has had back issues in the past, but he's still probably top five in the league at the nose tackle position. He's very disruptive. You rarely get men that size. So if he is not re-signed, I would keep an eye on him because he's going to get fucking paid. Uh, What about yourself, Ronan? Anyone you're looking at? Yeah, the Seahawks have, have no major free agents, so I can't really pick from that tree. But uh, don't, you, don't, don't the, you have your fullback? <laughs> <laughs> well, the full, fullback we picked up in like week uh, thirteen. Yeah. Um, so, but keeping within the division, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I don't have a lot of uh, free agents, like some big name ones like Tyron Matchy. But the one I'm interested in seeing is Calais Campbell. He's getting, I think he's thirty now, but he continues to be an absolutely dominant force on the defensive line for Arizona. Uh, as the Seahawks are more than aware uh, over the last <laughs> few years, and he is the kind of guy who could end up like walking away if he doesn't think if Arizona goes into rebuild mode, or he doesn't like think that that's where he needs to be. Uh, if he makes the open market, 
he'll be kind of an interesting, not bargain, but kind of value player that teams like you know the Pats or the Seahawks and those kind of teams will definitely be keeping tabs on if he manages to filter through the market a little bit. Uh, he could be an absolute change, like a game changer for a team which is on the edge of, of a Super Bowl contender. Yeah. What about yourself, Harry? Anyone you've got your eye on? Since apparently we're not allowed to talk about fullbacks because James Devlin is also a free agent. Um, yeah, I do. Uh, AJ Boye from the Patriots South, aka the Houston Texans, has had a magnificent season at cornerback. He's come out and played lights out stuff for them. Been a real difference maker on the defense. So that's a real good time to step up as well with Jonathan Joseph, you know, yeah. being older and being hurt a fair bit. He's in a position to get paid big time. Uh, top quality corners, lockdown corners, are at a premium in this league. They always are, but we're seeing it more so than ever now. Um, with guys like, you know, even even the likes of Sherman and Peterson be having relative down years, even though they're still playing well. A guy like Boye can be a difference maker for pretty much any team in the league, to be honest with you. And he's only 26, so he's young enough as well. Yeah. If Houston aren't willing to pay him and he walks, he immediately goes right up towards the top of the board of players you everyone is going to be competing for in free agency and he knows like the thing is regardless of what Houston offer him he can probably make more in free agency he can probably get in a bidding war over his rights mm. he'll be looking I imagine to, to go to a contender as well after the way mm. Houston are spinning their wheels recently if you're playing at a high level and you're given this opportunity to move on you might take it so it's going to be very interesting to see if Houston are able to keep him whether or not Houston might decide to tag him or something like that but Houston's cap situation isn't great, so they may not may find themselves in a position where they simply can't afford to do that. They've got their seventy-two million boondoggles. Exactly, a millstone around their necks. So if Boye hits the free market, even based only on what has really only been one year of really good production, he's going to be a hot, hot commodity. Well, we saw, we saw, we saw what Josh Norman went for last year after exactly. one decent season. Like so, exactly, it's going to be a very similar situation. So uh, he could he could end up anywhere, and I think he's going to be one of the most sought after players if he if he hits the market. No, definitely, definitely. So thanks for the questions there, guys. Uh, and we're going to move on to it. It's time. It's time to preview the biggest game of the season after the Pro Bowl. Uh, <laughs> it's time to preview Super Bowl 51. So, down in Houston, Texas, this Sunday night, we have New England taking on the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, I have taken Atlanta. Fitz has taken New England. Harry, do we even need to ask? You do. Who are you taking, Harry? Atlanta. Ooh! Oh! Stabbing Tom Brady in the back! <laughs> this is entirely because last year when uh, in the, not, yeah, in the uh, AFC Championship game I said, oh, New England are going to blow out Denver. They're going to put 40 points on them and I'm always wrong. So I'm picking Atlanta. <laughs> oh, my. Well, this shapes up, as I said, to be an excellent matchup. We've got the, the, the hottest offense in the league going up against probably the second hottest offense in the league, of, uh, well, especially in the last couple of run of games. A very strong defensive showing from New England throughout the season. Atlanta's defense seems to be rounding into form, but again, as we said in previous podcasts, we're not sure whether that's a reflection of them stepping up or whether it was just a kind of broken down Green Bay team that they were facing. This should be a very interesting, uh, interesting game. So let's have a look at some of the main talking points I think that we're going to have in this game. Harry, you've decided to take Atlanta in this one. Mm. A lot of people are saying that the, the issue is, and you raised it I think two podcasts ago, that this is a pick-your-poison type offense that the Falcons are putting out there. That you have the personnel to potentially lock down Julio Jones, but that's going to leave people like Mohamed Sanu and Taylor Gabriel open underneath as well as their stable of running back. Is that something that is going to trouble the Patriots' defense? I think so, because you have to cover everybody, really. There's nobody that you sort of don't need to worry about on the offense. We've even seen guys like uh, Levine Toilolo and Austin Hooper make huge plays 
um, where the coverage is in there, not like highly rated pass catching tight ends. Twilio is a very good blocker, and Hooper's decent but young. But we've seen even those guys. If you've got a guy who can put the ball in the right spot, you've got a big bloke who can push off. It doesn't really matter. So it's extremely difficult. I hate the phrase "pick your poison." By the way, it's just oh. yeah. But uh, the, the principle behind it is correct. There are so many things that New England have to do right, and there are so many different weapons Atlanta have to punish you. That if you take away one aspect of their game, be that the running game, be it the deep passing game, be it Julio Jones, they have four or five other options they can go to. And what we've seen consistently through the playoffs anyway is that outside of Malcolm Butler, New England's corners aren't playing very well. Um, Logan Ryan is fine, physical guy, but not perhaps the best. And uh, Eric Rowe has been a bit of a liability, to be honest with you, uh, particularly down the stretch where we've come up against better offenses. It's... Particularly concerning as well when you have two guys who can run out of the backfield plus a, a receiver like Taylor Gabriel who can do the short stuff and two big physical tight ends. There's a lot of short underneath options. Um, while New England has done a very, very good job and we saw it against Pittsburgh and we also saw it against Baltimore of when teams try to go short pass against them, they are able to lock it down, uh, basically create swarm, swarm the ball carrier and create three and outs uh, or make drives stall out in the middle part of the field. It's very difficult to do that when there are, again, a plethora of options that can get involved in that. And particularly when Atlanta runs so much misdirection, they use so much play action, they use all of these things to throw you off balance. And the fact is, New England's covered linebackers, again, this is the thing about swarming to the ball. These are guys who can move well, they're physical, they're athletic, they're not great coverage linebackers. Like, you don't want guys like uh, Dante Hightower or Rob Ninkovich or even Carvan Noy ending up basically matched up one-on-one on a receiver in man. You need them in the zone. You need them able to drop off and then come back and make the play. If you are able to misdirect that, you can open up huge holes. If they try and lock down one or two aspects of that, lock down the running backs, right, you can send Tyler Gabriel on a trick play. You can use an end around. You can look for the tight ends over the middle. There's so many different things to worry about there. Now, of course, as we know, if anyone can scheme it away, it's Bill Belichick. He's got a defensive game plan in the Hall of Fame everybody knows that it's just so, and like we know Atlanta can be stopped they have been beaten this yeah. year but it's so difficult to do and there are so many things that can go wrong when you have a game like this that can just tilt on that knife edge that one big moment of something going right of somebody mm. breaking out of coverage of somebody finding the soft spot that's where you can lose a game and Atlanta just have so many ways to do that that it's difficult to know even if they've got the scheme if New England necessarily have the personnel to be able to match up on everybody underneath yeah. So what do we reckon then? We've seen a huge push over the last, especially the last kind of seven or eight games of Tom Brady playing at an extremely high level. But still there's a degree to which this, this New England offense is a bit of a random number generator. We don't know which players are going to have big games. We've seen Chris Hogan play very well recently. We've seen, as, as Fitz mentioned earlier, uh, Mitchell's had games where he's gone off. And they've also had games where they've just relied almost entirely on their run game. And they've had success there. The question I'm going to ask you, Fitz, is because you've, you've, taken, you've taken New England in this one. What do you think their philosophy is going to be coming out into this game? Are they going to try and establish the pass? Are they going to go short? They're going to go long. They're going to start relying heavily on those running backs. What do you think is the best way for New England to approach tackling this Atlanta defense? In terms of what they do best, I'll assume whatever they do is, is best because <laughs> I am not Bill Belichick. Uh, he is pretty much probably better at coaching at football than me. Uh, and I think you know on the defensive side, I think Harry's right that that's all the statistics and all the personnel would make you think. The defense shouldn't do it, but you know this is this is New England. Like they've they've stopped some of the greatest offenses in NFL history. The Kegon Jim Kelly offenses. They stopped the greatest show on turf, uh, and they've generally only lost Super Bowls to teams with elite defenses, not offenses. But in terms of looking at the offense for New England, 
Patriots. I think they'll go for a balanced approach. I don't think this is a game where they'll expect Tom Brady to take the entire game on his shoulders. And I think they'll probably go for the short to intermediate routes. Like basically, the Atlanta defense basically they have a lot of fast, quick players. They they emphasize quickness in their players. So it's all about execution. It's all about the fact that it's similar to the Seahawks scheme. It's all about executing your role, keeping it simple, and then relying on your quickness and physical traits to cover up for whatever small gap might do there. But as we saw against Pittsburgh, that isn't going to be enough unless they can really move Tom Brady off his thing. And I think Bill Belichick will know that, and he'll recognize that their real strength is probably, of what they have, it's probably Keanu Neal in the kind of short, like in the kind of physical tone setting, but also the edge rushers, in particular Big Beasley. I think to counteract that, I think they're going to bring out Garrett Blunt. I think like Keanu Neal has shown himself to be a great player, but he's maybe still a year or two from becoming maybe the Cam Chancellor type player that uh, Dan Quinn wants him to be. And basically, Legarrette Blunt is the type of physical, you know, boulder type running back that will ultimately challenge a player like him to see if he can actually stop him in his tracks. I think they're going to have a lot of Legarrette Blunt initially to start up the game, and I think they're going to try and grind out the game in the first thing. Then I think what happens after that depends how the defense holds up. If the defense holds up, I imagine they'll still go balanced uh, and run maybe a bit of play action and keep the. But the, I think they'll probably rely uh, on Blunt for much longer. If they start getting behind, expect to see a lot more quick screens, a lot more quick throws to Malcolm Mitchell, to Julian Edelman, uh, and, and to James White uh, or Dion Lewis, as Harry intimated uh, in, in the surprise player section. And I think their game plan will evolve depending on how the game goes. If the defense holds up, I think this will be a very unusual New England offense where it will be much more like what we saw earlier in the season where they were really just willing to hand the ball off to Garrett Blunt and grind up opposing defensive lines that didn't have the skill or the talent to hold them up. And I think that could turn into the kind of thing is. I think if they get behind, that will change everything and they'll become more like the traditional uh, New England offense. But yeah, like, you know, with Tom Brady, you have that flexibility. And I think we saw with the Super Bowl two years ago in the Seahawks, that when they need to turn it up, they are capable of doing that. Uh, it's just a question of whether they'll need to or not. So there's two game plans there, depending on how they do. Uh, but I, I, at least to start, we're going to see a, a fair amount of shorts, passes, and physical running, and really try and test this Atlanta defense and see if, if it really is improved as we think it is. So I suppose overall, what do we reckon on balance? Obviously, I think that the I think that the Atlanta offense is going to overpower what I think will be a very good first half showing from the New England defense. But I think they're going to get tired, and that's when they're going to make the odd mistake, and that's where this big play potential offense kicks in. In my mind, what kind of area are we thinking points wise? Is this going to be a high scoring game? Is this going to be a tight game? Is this going to be a defensive slug, Harry? Um, I think it'll be tight enough. Like I don't think, like even for all the things you say about Atlanta's offense and Tom Brady, I don't think it's going to be a shootout. Um, I think both teams are too well coached for that to happen. I also don't think it's going to be a defensive slug fest because there is just too much talent on offense. I'm thinking something in the region of you know the sort of high twenties, low thirties kind of mm-hmm. thing. Probably similar enough to what we saw of the New England-Seattle uh, Super Bowl a few years ago in terms of where the score will end up. So it's prob- And it's probably going to come down to like a late-ish field goal or failed final drive to kind of settle this one. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking the margin will probably be three, four points, something along those lines. Yeah, I've got it, I've got it sitting around the same area. I think, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a big final push of the New England trying to get down the field to tie it up. And I think they're just going to come up short. I've got it going 31-24 to, uh, to Atlanta with 
the with the Patriots trying to drive down to tie the game in the in the final minutes. So I think I th- I'm expecting a very exciting game here. What about yourself, Fitz? Yeah, I, I'm thinking maybe something like 27, uh, 31, something in that kind of area to New England. Um, I think this will be a game that New England could actually get ahead uh, early on, and that will be very interesting to watch because Atlanta uh, haven't really been in that position much. Obviously, there's the famous statistic that they've scored on their first drive for a very large number of games. It's, I think it's 10 games in a row or yeah. something. I think New England have the capacity to slow them down, and I think it will be fun to see Atlanta going more up-tempo and going, seeing what they can actually do in that kind of situation. Um, but yeah, I think it will end up being close, but I think Atlanta may be chasing uh, up until the fourth quarter, and they might just come up short. Yeah, I'm, I'm expecting to see an awful lot of interesting stuff coming out of the playbook from Shanahan in this one, because, let's be honest, with him going to the 49ers, he's not going to have the ability of the personnel to run probably a lot of the more difficult and intricate parts of his playbook for at least a number of years. Uh, like, I'm, I'm expecting to see some real, real exciting kind of mixed up looks in this game. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be great. Yeah, it, it should be. Like, I think you're, these are two exciting teams. These are two teams who are fun to watch on both sides of the ball. Mm. At the end of the day, this should be a hell of a lot better than the last one anyway. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, I, I, I think it could get scrappy, though, on defense. I think both of these defenses like getting physical, like getting in your face. There could be. It'll be interesting to see if the referees are willing to throw the flags early to try and establish order over it, or whether you know the pressure of the occasion gets to them and they allow people to be, you know, play the game, and how that affects the overall philosophy of both offense and defense during the game. Yeah, no, it should be good. So I suppose I think that's that's it. That's our preview done. This is this is it, boys. This yeah. is the this is the end of another season. It's all real now. Yeah, it's going to be great. So what time are we calling around here for session? Whatever you want. Uh, the game <laughs> starts 11.30pm our time. Uh, fuck you, America. Fuck you, time zones. Yeah. Why can't we just be like China? We're like, no, we don't recognise time zones. Everything's one time zone. <laughs> fuck you. China time. Great bunch of lads, the Chinese. Um, <laughs> great bunch of lads. Yeah, whenever, whenever you just want, really. I'm, I'm up for a bit of... Uh, but a few cans beforehand. Yeah, no, it should be a good crack now. We'll have a get drunk, knock over the snack stadium, set everything on fire before everyone arrives. You know, oh, I'll be fab. Uh, we must have a look at you. We could, we should, we should do the, um, the 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 putting on Madden and having Madden on on Max setting playing the game to, oh, yeah. to try and preclude it. And then you know we can we can start a big betting syndicate on the digitalized version of the uh, of the Super Bowl. The, the last time we did this, and we didn't do it last year, but the year before when uh, we got everyone to call the margin of victory mm. in the game, and uh, I had New England minus four, so. Oh, very good. Yeah, I didn't put any fucking money on it. Should have done. But <laughs> I wasn't that confident. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it should be. Uh, it should be fun. Actually, interesting little fun. Well, not fun. Narrative coming out of media week. The whole Trump thing with New England. Oh yeah, of course. Um, which has been been a little bit weird and uncomfortable for everybody involved. Mm. I think. Well, we're having the crack for our for our uh, American listeners. We're going down to a, to a, to a protest on Thursday. Oh, we uh, are. Yeah. Against against your current approach to immigration and refugees. Because do you know what, your boys a cunt. Yeah. I think we can all agree. Fuck Trump. Yeah. Fuck uh, Trump. And fuck Tom Brady for supporting. Him. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good. Uh, I don't know if you saw the media thing. It was, uh, to be fair, Arthur Blank had a good uh, good line. They were doing like a fun thing with the owners, and they were like, "Oh, who's the most important person in your phone?" And they asked Kraft, and Kraft was kind of going, uh, and Blank just went, "Ah, Donald Trump." <laughs> <laughs> well, with um, Trump in the White House, he might actually have a chat with Putin about getting Kraft's ring back. Yeah, off yeah that's true. That must be the whole thing. Kraft wants his ring back. Mm. But see, Marty Bennett said he won't go to the White House if the Patriots win. 
Oh, good. Marty Bennett is woke and said, uh, I don't like, I don't agree with Donald Trump, and yeah, if we win, I'm not going to go to the White House. Fair enough. Fair so, enough. Yeah. so essentially we're going to have, like, Trump is now going to try and fix the game against them. What about yourself? He'll protest by, ha- he'll, like, he'll follow his tight end compatriot and have, like, the Marty, the Marty party boat. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Actually, the, the worst part of that is that Mohammed Sanu is the only Muslim player in the mm-hmm. Super Bowl. So all the reporters are like, "Hey, Mohammed, what do you think about the Muslim ban?" And he was like, "Understandably, like, I, I, this is not the time. Yeah, this is not the time to talk about this shit." Um, I've got a Super Bowl on. But yeah, should we talk? What about yourself? Fits any plans during the week? Yeah, I have the, the stag on Friday. Well, no, on Saturday. Come down on Friday in Dublin. Uh, I think you said we'll be you'll we'll be at the drinks on the Friday. Everybody. Yeah, yeah. I'll meet you guys uh, for a few beers. I'll be off work. So up up to up. Carlingford on Saturday morning, back to Dublin on Sunday morning afternoonish, and presumably then roll my way down to to Harry's Gap for the uh, Super Bowl party. Try and stay awake for how many hours that requires. You might want to have a might want to have a nap in there somewhere. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Napster for should be should be a good crack now, but yeah, no, looking forward to it. Then. Can we get odds on Tom Brady being Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee? <laughs> Is that right? Actually, <laughs> oh. no. Bill Belichick like just steals everyone else's judgments. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this will be a matter of and just like looking over Ruth Bader Ginsburg's notes, like yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I suppose look, that'll that'll do it for now. We're gonna have a we're gonna have a kind of a hungover cast on the Monday afterwards. We'll get our our thoughts on it. We might get ourselves a bit of a bit of Sean Butler in there as well. Very whoever's good. whoever's knocking around and has a has the ability to, to talk in the morning. Let's not go crazy here. Like, yeah, should be should be good crack. But uh, I suppose early afternoon cast. I think. Yeah, early afternoon cast might be might be a better bet. But I suppose that's uh, that's us for now, and we'll, we'll we'll see us all on Monday. So it's bye from myself, bye from Harry, fuck Trump, bye from Rowan. And uh, thanks for listening to All Four Quarters. Like I say, drop us a line if you've got any questions and stuff. And we will talk to you next week after the Super Bowl. Rubble Hype!